We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, welcome back to another edition of How the Faith Came to the United States. This time we're doing Kansas. You know, I'm taking most of, basically all this info from, from a book, A, a Centenary of Catholicity in Kansas, 1822-1922. The history of our cradle land, Miami and Lynn counties, Catholic Indian missions and missionaries of Kansas, the pioneers of the prairies by Thomas Kinselli. Yeah, I got this from Forgotten Books. It's a reprint. Uh, very full. I won't go. I won't read the entire thing because it's 247 pages, and uh, that would take quite some time to read all this. But it has a ton of great information uh, and historical backgrounds in here. If you are in the Kansas area, uh, I would have this. I have one's books on South and North Carolina. So if I lived in Kansas, I would like this book. So, anyways. I'll start with the introduction. The names of the first Americans who cast in their lots with the country of their adoption made a roll of honor of Catholic heroes. They're the great discoverers, Columbus, the Cabots, Americus Vespucius, Vespucius, Jolette, Cartier, La Salle. There are the bold colonizers like Iberville, Bienville, Cadillac, Duluth, Vincenzis, not to mention the English Lord Baltimore. There are missionaries from Las Casas and the priests who sailed with Columbus and Cabot to Father Juniper Serra and his brother Apostles of California. These missionaries were often scientists as well as saints with the name of Lamone, Lamonier, L-A-L-E-M-O-Y-N-E. Stand those of Roche de, de Alone, Mare and other priests, Franciscans and Jesuits, as the geologists and botanists who identified our herbs and found the salt springs of Onondaga, Onondaga, O-N-O-N-D-A-G-A. The oil springs of Pennsylvania, the copper of Lake Superior, the lead of Illinois, our beds of coal and our mines of turquoise. Among the philologists, of the Indian languages, standout fathers, fathers Rales, White, Sagard, Perela, Bouya, Garnier, Garcia, Le Bolanger, Cuestra, Sihar, who for almost two centuries before the revolution were publishing dictionaries, grammars, catechisms, and prayer books in the tongues of the native tribes of Florida, Maryland, Texas, and California. Among the apostles and martyrs who have left us the earliest land, history of our land and the Jesuit relations are numbered fathers Marquette, Hannah Peel, Isaac Jokes, Rambolt, Menard, Alouez, Brebeuf, 
Lalamend, Daniel, Biard, Real, Massé, and many more, of whom Bancroft could say, quote, Thus did the religious zeal of the French bear the cross of the banks of the St. Mary and the confines of, the Saint, of Lake Superior and look wistfully toward the homes of the Sioux in the valley of the Mississippi before the New England Elliot had addressed the tribe of, Elliot, of Indians that dwelt within six miles of Boston Harbor. As early as 1541, the soil of Kansas was hallowed by the blood of Father Juan de Padilla, who died a victim of his zeal for the conversion of the Indians during Coronado's famous expedition. He was America's first martyr. In fact, it was commonplace to state that the early missionaries of the Christian faith left enduring monuments in every country of the civilized world. Their heroism and self-sacrifice had been the theme of the chronicler, the historian, and the poet, as well as the source of much of the legendary lore of everyday people. This is no less true of the New World than of the Old. America has had its own great missionaries, men of heroic wood, mold, whose labors and sacrifices wrought, as it were, a second Pentecost, and won the Christ and the civilization, the, the savage races to this continent. They laid the foundation of all the future glory of this new land by their explorations and discoveries, by their plans for colonization, for education, for everything that contributed to change the country from the wilderness to the land of happy homes, of beautiful cities and cultivated plains. They were, in truth, the pioneers of civilization in America. The Indian Days, establishment of the Catholic missions in the Indian Territory, direct fruit to Bishop Dubourg's exertions and immediately connected with the Jesuit Fathers of Florissant. This is from the Catholic Cabinet, St. Louis, Missouri, November 1843. The government of the United States, having deemed a good policy to concentrate the aborigines of the country, commonly called Indians, assigned for this purpose a territory beyond which, within a distance of 1,500 miles, no suitable habitation for white men can be made. This Indian territory is bounded by the states of Missouri and Arkansas towards the east, by the so-called American Desert on the west, by Texas on the south, and by the Missouri and Platte Rivers to the north, and has been assigned as a permanent abode of the various Indian tribes scattered throughout the Union. This was in 1830. The Pawnees, Omahas, Kansas, Osage, and Missourians roamed at large over the lands of this territory, before this plan was adapted, adopted by our government, which, as a not necessary consequence of the new approbation, was obliged to confine them within certain limits and to persuade them to cede part of their lands to their red brethren east of the Mississippi. In consequence of this arrangement, the Chickasaws, Chickasaws Cherokees, Creeks, Seminoles, Senecas, Potatamanes, Ottawas, Chippeways, Oats, Minimas, Shawanis, and Delawares, Chickapoy, Illaways, and Foxes immigrated, some by force, others by persuasion, but all most unwillingly from the various states of the Union to the respective portions of the territory assigned to them by the U.S. government. The original inhabitants of this territory are called the indigenous tribes and are savage and rushed to the extreme. The immigrant tribes are more or less civilized according to the different relations they have had with the settlers of the states. 
The whole number of the Indians in this territory amounts to about 80,000 souls. With regard to their numbers, it may be observed that they appear, appear gradually to decrease owing to their inordinate mode of living, their vicious habits, the unsuitableness of the soil, the change of air by immigration, etc., so that they may be said, in the language of the prophet Osei, to disappear as early dew that passes away, as the dust that is driven with a whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. Of their character, it may be said in general that, quote, They are the sinful nation, described by Isaiah, a people laden with iniquity, a wicked seed, and gracious children. It is true that the immigrant tribes have some civilization, but, generally speaking, with all the vices of the white men, they have brought few or none of their virtues over to the Indian wilds. The state of our holy religion is truly deplorable among these unhappy people. Almost all the tribes are in favor of Catholic missioners and feel a kind of natural aversion to Protestant preachers. And yet, in the absence of the former, the latter are almost everywhere to be found and the whole territory has about 30 Protestant missionary establishments. But every plantation not made by the hand of the Father shall be rooted out. Vain are the efforts of these unsent apostles to make proselytes among the Indians. They may indeed scatter hundreds of Bibles among the savages, but these are neither prized nor understood. The principle that faith is to be conceived by the Bible, and by the Bible alone, proves quite incomprehensible to the illiterate and savage mind. And the consequence is that all the Protestant congregations of the Indian Territory do not amount to 500 souls. While the few of the Indians whose devotion is bought and paid for, like any other marketable commodity, are nominal adherents to Protestantism, while thousands daily worship their manitos and indulge in all the excesses of unbridled licentiousness, the voice of the Catholic Church is almost unheard except on the banks of the Sugar Creek, a tributary stream of the North Fork of the Osage River. We would, however, willingly indulge the hope that within a few years a line of Catholic missions may be established from the Missouri River down to Texas, a plan by no means difficult, difficult of execution and one which would be of incalculable advantage to religion. The field is large and the harvest promising, but the laborers are by far too few. The order chosen by Bishop Duberg for the evangelization of the Indian tribes of the West was the Society of Jesus. The government of the United States was glad to receive the cooperation of the Catholic Church in civilizing these barbarians who were liable to cause endless trouble, and the Church gladly accepted the preferred aid of the government. John Odin then only in Deacon's order, wrote to the director of the seminary in Lyons, March 30, 1822, quote, Bishop Duberg, en route to Baltimore, stopped at Washington to confer with the President of the United States concerning the mission to the savages which he is planning to establish. The question was carried to the Senate, and although nearly all the members were Protestants, they resolved to grant a sum of money for the furtherance of this project. They promised, moreover, to pay a small pension to the missionaries and to furnish them with the necessary agricultural implements. The savages themselves showed the most favorable dispositions. On October 21, 1822, Father Odin wrote from the barons 
in regard to the earlier efforts made for the conversion of the Indians, quote, We have the consolation of seeing a mission open, or at least begun, among the savages. Father LaCroix, chaplain to the ladies of the Sacred Heart of the Florescent, near St. Louis, has made two journeys to the great Osage. He was cordially received and conceived great hopes of seeing the faith prosper among the tribe. Forty persons, children, and old people received the waters of baptism. The second visit was short. He preached, however, before the entire tribe and the chiefs, answering, said that they were happy to hear the word of the Great Spirit. He, he pushed on further, also along the banks of the stream, a hundred leagues beyond the nation of the Osage, among the great numbers of other savages. The fever from which he suffered almost constantly during this second mission prevented him from prolonging his sojourn and obliged him also to abandon his attention of building a church in this part of the country. The poor savages exist in great numbers. There are 30 or 40,000 very large tribes between the Arkansas River and the Columbia River and the Pacific Ocean. Their affection for the black robes is touching, especially for the French priests. Some time ago, a great number of savages were in St. Louis. One of them was taken on some errand to a house where the bishop happened to be. The moment he perceived the bishop, he ran to him, seized his hand, and kissed it with every demonstration of friendship. Having departed without remembering to go through the same ceremony, he recalled his mistake only when already at some distance from the house. He turned back immediately, running all the way, and uttering loud cries, kissed the bishop's hand, and departed once more. Bishop Duberg himself writes on this subject to his brother in Bordeaux, March 17, 1823, quote, Providence deigns to grant a success to this negotiation, far in excess of my hopes. The government bestows upon me $200 a year for each missionary, and that for four or five men, and it promises to increase the number gradually, and I am sure that it will do so. For an enterprise such as this, it was essential that I should have men especially called to this work, and I had almost renounced the hope of ever obtaining such when God, in his infinite goodness, has brought about one of these incidents which I alone, which he alone can foresee and direct the results. The Jesuits, of whom I speak, had their institution in Maryland, and finding themselves excessively embarrassed for the lack of accommodation, were on the point of disbanding their novitiate when I obtained their punctuary encouragement from the government. They have seized this opportunity and have offered to transport the whole novitiate, master and novices, into Upper Louisiana and formed their preparatory school for Indian missionaries. If I had my choice, I could have not desired anything better. Seven young men, all Flemings, full of talent, all and, and of the spirit of St. Francis Xavier, advanced in their studies, about 22 to 27 years of age, with their two excellent masters and some brothers. This is what Providence at last grants to my prayers. Near the spot where the Missouri empties into the Mississippi, Outside the village of Florissant, already so happy as to possess the principal intuition of the ladies of the Sacred Heart, I have a good yielding farm, excellent soil, which if well cultivated, which it is not at present, could easily provide sustenance for 20 persons, at least. 
so far in the important question nourishment is concerned. True, there is only a small house on that place, but in this country a big cabin of rough, of rough wood, such as will be suitable for the apostles of the savages, is quickly built. It is there that I will locate this novitiate, which will be for all time a seminary especially intended to form missionaries for the Indians and for the civilized and ever-growing population of Missouri. As soon as the actual subjects are ready, we will commence the mission in good earnest. In the meantime, I propose to receive in the seminary a half-dozen Indian children from the different tribes in order to familiarize my young missionaries with their habits and language and to prepare the Indians to serve as guides, interpreters, and aids to the missionaries when they are sent to the scattered tribes. In the spring of 1822, Father de Croix, chaplain of the Ladies of the Sacred Heart, came on horseback from Florissant, Missouri, to preach the gospel to the great Osages on the Neosho River in Kansas. The trail to the west crossed Missouri from St. Louis and entered the Indian country at or near where the Miami Indian village once stood. This spot is about eight miles southeast of Palau on the Mer Marias de Sigens River. It is supposed that Father de la Croix followed the usual trail and entered Kansas at this point. It is worthy of note that he was the first priest to enter this vast region since the days of Father Juan de Padilla in 1541, as far as any written records show. Miami County claims the distinction of being the scene of Father de la Croix's first labors in Kansas, for he, no doubt, tarried among such tribes as lay in his path. His first thought was to bless the land, quote, beseeching the Lord to visit it and drive far from it from all the snares of the enemy. He asked that the holy angels might dwell, dwell therein and guard its peace and that its blessing might remain forever. The good man's heart was filled with admiration of all the natural beauty that lay around him on every side, for, as it was known, there is nothing on earth more beautiful than the Kansas prairies in the late spring. Pushing on through this paradise of birds and flowers for a distance of about 80 miles, he came at last to the Nisho River and found the object of his labor and laborious searchings, the Great Osage Tribe, one of the noblest band of savages within the confines of Kansas. <clears throat> in the following extract from the article published in the St. Louis Catholic Cabinet, November 1843, gives a delightful account of this and a following visit. Quote, on the occasion of his first visit, as they were about to depart on a hunting expedition, he could only see one village. He was very well received and baptized a great many children, and he had promised to visit all the villages of the nation of the Indians. He was obliged to return last summer. He left Florissant, which is situated five leagues from St. Louis, on the 22nd of July, after traveling 12 days on horseback across prairies, broken by forests and streams, he reached the first village, which he had already visited in the spring of 1822. They were delighted to see him again. He was accompanied by several persons who intended to trade with the savages. All the warriors came to meet them. They were conducted with great honor to the head chief and invited to feasts prepared by the savages, and so were kept going until evening, from cabin to cabin. At these repasts, they were presented with wooden dish filled with boiled maize or buffalo meat, but each dish had to be duly tasted. 
the head chief and six of the principal warriors offered to accompany the missionary in his visit to the other villages. Christmas ornaments came quite a distance to meet him. They rode finely trained horses. The occupations of the men are war and hunting. The women are very hard working. They it is who build the cabins and carry the loads of firewood on their backs. The quantity that they take at one time is astonishing. The whole nation is clothed, decently at least. Everyone is covered with a robe. Polygamy is practiced among them, for it is the custom that when a savage demands a girl in marriage and is accepted, not only she, but all her sisters also belong to him and are looked upon as his wives. They pride themselves greatly upon having several wives. Another great obstacle to their civilization lies in their strong distaste for the cultivation of the soil and all kinds of work. They care for nothing but war and hunting. One day, the missionary had celebrated the holy sacrifice. All the chiefs were present, and also as many savages as the place would hold. He, was to he has told me that he was greatly moved by the respectful attention that they showed, and the exactitude with which they rose and knelt, raising their arms and eyes to heaven. After Mass, he distributed to all the chiefs a number of crosses, fastened the ribbons, which he threw around their necks. He also baptized several children. For several years, Protestant missionaries, sent out and well paid by the American government, had been settled along among these savages and had built up establishments where they cared for the children of this nation for a certain time. But they were not successful, and nearly a year ago the Indians took away all their children, saying that they had realized that they were not black robes, as they had thought they were at first. The soil of this portion of Missouri is very fertile, and there are prairies six or seven leagues in extent. In summer, in summer the heat is excessive. It was during this journey that the missionary was attacked by a burning fever which forced him to leave the Osages. He was obliged to tra travel twelve days on horseback, sleeping at night in the woods, not coming across a single miserable cabin. This is how they go around arranging their camp. Having chosen the most suitable place, they unload and un unharness the horses, which they let loose in the woods that they may pasture during the night. They build a hut with the branches of trees, and having gathered wood, they light a big fire. Over this, they, put a, they boil a piece of young buck placed on a stick planted before the fire, the meat being turned from time to time. This fire serves also to drive away bears and other wild beasts. After their repast, they roll themselves up in a buffalo skin, and fatigue renders the poor bed very comfortable. Sugar Creek was the name of an Indian village. It stood in the midst of a prairie, 900 miles in length, as much in breadth, which reached from the Mississippi to the Rocky Mountains. It was situated at 38 degrees 20 north latitude, 17 and one half miles west from the dividing line of Kansas and Missouri, and about 18 or 19 miles south of Osage River on a tributary system named by the missioners Sugar Creek. The Potawatomi Mission presented a glorious contrast with the neighboring Indian settlements. Half the people here, Mother Rose Philippine Duchesne wrote, are Catholics and live in a separate village from the heathens who are being gradually converted. Once baptized, they leave off stealing and drinking. All the houses are left open, but nothing is ever stolen. The Patawatamis assemble every morning for prayers, mass and instruction, and the same for night prayers. 
Whenever the missionary father is absent, one of the natives replaces him, not only in praying, but in preaching. Sometimes the priest makes a sign to one of the catechists, who comes out and begins to speak, at first bashfully, with two blankets wrapped closely around him, but soon he grows eager in the discourse, disengages his arm, and becomes eloquent. The Christian faith transforms not only the souls, but even the features of these savages. They lose the wild, fierce look of the pagans. All the parishioners go to confession once a month. On Saturdays, the confession was besieged, and over 100 go to communion every Sunday. There was nevertheless room for improvement, especially among the neighboring tribes who were addicted to many vices. Mother Deshane writes, writes, Now, if by degrees we can change the dreadful state of the neighboring tribes into a happy condition of our Christian villages, Shall we not be more usefully employed than the teaching human sciences in schools? If Alexander the Great wept on the shore of the ocean because he could not carry his conquest any further, I might weep also at the thought that at my advanced age prevents me from saving so many poor people who destroyed themselves by their bad lives. Mother Duchesne's health and spirits seem to be improved by the atmosphere of holiness and poverty. But the winter at Sugar Creek proved particularly severe. Except in the hunting season, maize and sweet potatoes were their only substance. And such as a diet soon told on one so weak. Spending half the day on a bed of suffering, she still prayed and tried to knit, offering herself as on a cross for the salvation of her dear, dear Indians. After a year in which she had won the veneration of the Patawatomis, who called her after their fashion, quote, the woman who prays always. She was recalled to St. Charles in July 1842. Her place on the mission at Sugar Creek was filled by Madame's Thiefery and Xavier, who in 1845 retired together in favor of Sister Mary. And when the mission was moved from Sugar Creek in 1848, Mother Lucille, Madame O'Connor, and Sisters Mary and Louise moved with it to St. Mary's Mission on the Kansas River, and began the new foundation, which in 20 years developed into a large convent and academy. This scene of their labors is enriched by their hallowed remains. Altogether, we believe we have seen angels watching over the little graveyard by the orchard. It would be grateful task to record lessons of these hidden lives spent in the vineyard of the Lord. The elevated ground or hill that is now part of Paola rests on a granite formation from which issues a spring of excellent water. This spring attracted the Peoria tribe of Indians soon after their arrival in the territory, influencing them, no doubt, to set up their wigwams in its vicinity. The hill lay in a vast undulating plain which many creeks and rivulets flowed to the Osage, now called the Maurice de Cygnus River. The Miamas, the Wies, the Piankashas and the Ottawas, also the Potawatomis, settled down within a radius of 20 or 30 miles around the Peoria village. The head chief of the Allied tribes resided here, and finally, the Osage River Indian Agency established its headquarters at this point. It was a marked spot from the beginning. The whole section, now known as Miami County, was an ideal Indian hunting ground. The forests along the creeks and rivers were well stocked with game, wild animals were in abundance, and the yearly 
migration of the buffalo, deer, and elk actually covered the whole face of nature. They came in droves to browse through the prairies, moving from north to south and again from south to north like the robins of our day. This was the Indian's hunting season, the harvest time, so to speak, when we went forth to reap his rewards with as much zest as our farmers now enter their harvest fields. Over and above all this, the government agencies were ever present to supply his modest needs and the missionaries labored with zeal and much self-sacrifice to elevate him, to civilize him, and make him self-sustaining if that was all possible. As the Potawatomi band of Indians were encamped only eight or nine miles from the Peoria and Wea tribes, it is presumed, of course, that Father Hokin visited them in 1838. As the record goes, however, we find that Father Helen Society of Jesus, was the first to preach the gospel to the Peorias and neighboring tribes in May 1839. He continued to visit them from Sugar Creek until 1842. It is safe to surmise that the holy sacrifice of the Mass was offered up on a spot within the confines of the present Paola. During the same May of 1839, and the place was near the spring around which the wigwams were set up. Father de Con, Society of Jesus, visited the Peorias and Weyes on April 18, 1845, and remained until the 23rd. The Council of Chiefs decided that the time had come for their people to be baptized. Father de Con instructed them until October 1846, and Father Hoken baptized the whole tribe in January 1847. He remained 10 days, says the diary, by which time he had baptized them all and blessed their marriages according to the rite of the Catholic Church. Soon afterwards, namely in March 1847, Father Hoken returned from Sugar Creek to prepare a class of 40 Peoria Indians for the First Holy Communion, which took place on Trinity Sunday of that year. This was probably his last visit to Miami County as preparations were being made for the exodus of the new locations of the Can on the Kansas or Caw River during that and the following year. About this time, Fathers Troyans and Val and Van Mierlo came from Florissant to the Miami Village. How many people now living in Miami County, says Major Ben J. Simpson, writing in a local paper, know the fact that in the year 1846, the brave Catholic Fathers, who all through our history appeared to be the pioneers in religious work among the Indians, established a mission for the Miamis and the neighboring tribes of Peorias, Wees, Piancashas, and Kaskaskias, and how fathers Troyans and Van Mielo, with two lay brothers, labored for years to convert them to Christianity, but were finally recalled to St. Louis. And then, how the devoted fathers at the Osage Mission on the Aisho River, 80 miles away, crossed the trackless and uninhabited prairie and visited the Miami Mission almost every month and by this means preserved the Catholic faith among them. And then Fathers Skiat and Favre of Lawrence took charge of them until Father Watron was located at Paola. Around the mission building and agency house in Miami Village on the east bank of the Maurice de Signas River, 10 miles southeast of Paola in 1854, when the territory was organized, were grouped a dozen log houses. 
The Osage River Agency proper was located on the hill immediately north and adjoining the town site of Paola, and around it were grouped some big houses. An Indian chapel existed at the Peoria village in 1846 and was dedicated to God under the patronage of St. Francis Xavier. This location is supposed to have been at or near the famous old spring in the northwest part of town. Here resided the chief, Baptiste Peoria. He was born in 1800 near Kaskia, Illinois. He did not receive a school education, but by the natural force of his intellect, acquired a number of Indian languages and also English and French. He was for many years interpreter and for some time chief of the Confederate tribes in Miami County, Kansas. He came to Kansas in 1829 and settled near what is now Paola. When the tribes were moved from, uh, to the Indian Territory, he went with them and died there in 1874. The tribe moved to the Oklahoma Indian Territory in the fall of 1868. The story of the life of Baptiste de Peoria, says B.J. Sheridan, is, is threaded with the history of Miami County. He was an Indian, a diamond in the rough. No man of an early day caught a higher inspiration of coming events than Peoria who was generally called by his first name, pronounced Batiste. Although he couldn't write his name, yet he was well-informed and possessed a broad education. It was indifference to him that the legislator of Kansas, when it changed the name of Lykins County, gave it the tribal name of Miami. Indeed, it was his suggestion, and ever after, his great heart beat in unison with the chorus, The Rose of Miami. And how accurately he foresaw and foretold the succession of the rapid run of events connected with the early civilization of this favorite spot that became the scene of drama, tragedy, and comedy. Here began the pious works of the fathers, and here followed the bloody, the bloody secession, the sorrow and death of internecine war. Blood was as water and money as leaves. So lightly were human life and property regarded. After the war... There was enacted a great drama of Kansas politics. Here, Jim Lane, Ingalls, Wagstaff, and Simpson took the stage and briefly played their parts. With the comedies of county seat struggles be between Paola and Asawatomi, the rise and fall of parties, the clash of newspapers, and the wild speculations incident to the advent of the railway, came the ridiculous and interesting entertainments of the day. And out of all that came finally the better side of human life. The result was, in a measure, due to the influence of the pioneer women of Kansas. The home, the school, and the church were the means they employed to establish law and order in the new territory. In those times, nearly every district or county had noted women whose influence went far to benefit the commonwealth or whose ability helped to develop the great natural resources of the new empire. Miami County can boast of many such women. One in particular deserves mention here. Her name was Mary Ann Isaacs, the wife of the chief of the Allied tribes, Baptiste Peoria. She was an Indian woman of French extraction who came to Kansas in 1844 as the wife of Christian Dagnet. After the death of her first husband, she married Baptiste Peoria and henceforth became a person of great importance in this community. The other time she may be called the Queen of the Tribes, but to the new people she had a more beautiful name, 
They called her Mother Baptiste, and they spoke the words with an affection and respect that was sincere. Miss Peoria was much attached to Paola and refused to leave it when the tribe was transferred to the Indian Territory. She took a personal interest in the famous county seat dispute and used her influence to bring that honor to Paola. It is owing to her as much as anyone else that the county seat is located at this point and not at Osawatomi. Through her influence, Baptiste Peoria donated the lands on which the Catholic Church now stands and also helped to build the little structure which was afterwards known as Old Stone Church. Many are still living who know Mother Baptiste, and the testimony of all is that she was a woman of unusual mental prayer, self-posed, attractive, and refined. She had a charm of manner and a personal magnetism that even a stranger was soon experienced. She was as good as she was kind and as sincere in her friendship as she was rich in simple, natural gracefulness. It is to be regretted that the story of her life has not been written. It would make a tragic tale of unusual interest and, all the more, because it would be a stranger narrative than fiction could invent. Mother Baptiste was here long before the white man came and she was still here when there was not a red Indian left in all the land. She beheld a civilized savagery of her territorial days and, finally, lived to see Kansas take its place among the great and rich states of the Union. In 40 years, 1844-1883, she witnessed one of the greatest transformations in all history and was, at the time of her death, the last living witness of all the early Indian days in Miami County. She could still recall the exodus of her people from their ancient hunting grounds beyond the Mississippi to the prairies of the West, and the sadness of it all was too great to be expressed in the language of the conqueror. In her own tongue, however, she could tell the tale, but alas, there was none to listen, no one to understand. Mother Baptiste lived in a cottage on the northeast corner of P. Ankenshaw and East Streets at the time of her death, which took place on March 4, 1883. Her funeral was held at Holy Trinity Church in a most solemn manner, and her remains were interred beside those of her first husband, Christian Dagnett, in the Cashman Cemetery, some three and a half miles southeast of Lewisburg. Previous to the advent of the white man, these vast plains inspired a sense of awe and mystery, which varied with the changing seasons. In wintertime, they resembled the Sahara Desert. In spring and summer and early fall, a paradise, nature's playground, throbbing with wildlife, adorned with flowers, fruits, and forests, which grew along its creeks and rivers. In spring, summer, and fall, a marvelous sight. Vast herds of buffalo roamed over the land, and elk and deer were present in great numbers. Wild animals in great variety were in abundance, and birds and thousands flocked from the north and the south in regular waves to nest and feed until the rigors of winter bid them depart. Then nature herself went to sleep beneath the coverlet and rosette color, to be in turn shrouded in the softest, whitest snow imaginable. Nothing green remained until spring began, again a resurrection, and a life as fresh, as vigorous, as joyful and abundant as on the morning of creation itself. Civilization, or the puny hand of man, had not yet marred this wonderful work of God. Its vastness, its variety, its ceaselessness changes both in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, were all enhanced by the play of the elements, the sunshine and the rain, 
the sleeping winds and the mighty storms, the cyclones, the tornadoes, and the rolling thunders to be followed speedily by the softest, richest glow of a sunset or a sunrise that was ever seen on land or sea. This was Kansas as God made it, and it is Kansas today. Except where art seeks to improve on nature with such poor success, yet outside the modicum of convenience and comfort attained by civilized man, we find such an abundance of untouched natural beauty, power, and grandeur remaining, as of old, that the transformation is, as yet, scarcely noticeable. Notwithstanding all this, it is strange to say that two generations ago, all the land west of the river and the state line of Missouri was regarded as unfit for the use of white man. It was known as the Great American Desert and was considered a suitable dwelling place for the remnants of various tribes of Indians still to be found in many parts of the United States. It embraced a body of land covering 82,000 square miles, being the largest of the southern states except Texas. To give some idea what these figures mean, let us suppose that we could combine the states of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and the District of Columbia in one state. Kansas could contain them all and still leave room for another Rhode Island. This exceeds the two Virginias in size and is larger than Ohio and Indiana combined. Its natural resources have proven to be simply marvelous and its soil produces various and abundant harvests. It is indeed a glorious bit of God's great earth and no doubt is destined to fill the large place in the designs of providence. Our task, however, is restricted to the religious phase of Miami and Lynn County history, and for that, we begin near Osawatomi, the mission established by Father Christian Hoken, Society of Jesus, on Potawatomi Creek near its confluence with the Marias de Cygnus River, sometimes mentioned as the North Fork of the Osage River, or simply the Osage River near the present site of Osawatomi, bestows on Miami County the title of Cradle Land of Catholicism in Kansas. This mission was preserved its identity from 1838 to the present time, whether we knew, view it as Potawatomi Creek, Sugar Creek, or in all its glory besides the call at St. Mary's. It was the first successfully organized mission west of the Missouri line. All others failed or became places of periodic visitation until Father Showmakers Society of Jesus established Osage Mission in 1847. The little church at Potawatomi Creek, 22 by 40, was built in November 1838, and the following year, Father Hoken selected a new site at Sugar Creek in the present Lynn County, about 20 miles further to the south, and there began St. Mary's Mission. The zeal and activity of the fathers residing at that mission seem to us today something bordering of the marvelous. Removed from all civilization, in a country without roads or bridges, they traveled on horseback or on foot over vast expanses of territory, visiting many tribes, ministering to the white settlers at Deepwater, Missouri, while Westport Landing, 70 miles to the north, was regularly visited, and Fort Scott, far to the south, claimed their attention. Sugar Creek itself was a bustling, busy place at this time. All connected with the mission seemed to be happy with their prim primitive surroundings, and gave themselves over wholeheartedly to the conver conversion, education, and social betterment of the various tribes around them. They were, in truth, an apostolic body of men, refined, highly educated, 
and inspired with the noblest motives, as is evident from Father Hogan's diary. Sugar Creek Mission, St. Mary's Mission, or Mission of the Immaculate Conception, as it was variously called, must have become very dear to the hearts of all these men, and no less so to that truly remarkable woman, Mother Philippine Duchesne, and to her band of devoted teachers. Surely the Potawatomis were favored by God, and it must be said to their credit that they corresponded nobly to every grace. That tribe carried with them into Kansas the traditions of Father Marquette and the memory of Father Baden, who had baptized some of their living members. At Potawatomi Creek, as well as Sugar Creek, this tribe displayed the fervor of the early Christians. The mission plant in 1847 was well established. There was a large church, plainly but nicely furnished by the hands of the sisters by contributions from distant cities. There were schools, well attended and efficiently taught. There was a priest's house, a sister's convent, and some workshops. There were horses, cattle, and farm implements. Hunting was still good in the locality, and elk, deer, and buffalo came along in due season, and at times fish was also plentiful. The yearly yield of maple sugar was quite an item, and nuts, berries, and wild fruit were in abundance. Father Hogan deemed it an ideal spot for a Catholic mission. The land was poor, tis true, and malaria troubled them as it did all early settlements along the creeks of Kansas, but it had other advantages which more than made up for this, these drawbacks. The harvest of souls was now ripening in Sugar Creek in 1847 when the clouds began to gather. Some wily agent or some secret influences were laying plans at Washington for the removal, or rather the destruction, of St. Mary's Mission in Sugar Creek. The land was purchased from the Indians without much ado, and the civil government carried out its purpose in 1848 when the Potawatomis were removed to a new reservation further to the northwest on the Caw River at the point where the town of St. Mary's now stands. It was a sad and solemn moment for good Father Hogan. Nevertheless, it is true, Father Verant urged him to accept the Caw River Reserve, among other reasons, quote, because the soil at their Osage River home was unsatisfactory and a climate unhealthy. And we may safely add, because he sought to make a virtue out of what seemed to be a foregone conclusion, Indians were never interested in the quality of the soil. It was the quality of the hunting that concerned them. And as for health, the plains of Kansas were about all alike. It was a noticeable fact that Father Hogan is silent in regard to the motives back to this transaction. We know that the ladies of the Sacred Heart were bewildered and sad at heart, seeing that they had to go to an unknown place and begin all over again. The Indians themselves began to scatter. Quote, the decrease in the number of baptisms, says the diary on its last page, shows how the Indians were scattered in 1848. The baptisms for 1846, 47, 48 were 178, 142, and 48 respectively. The baptisms for 10 years, 1838-1848, were 1,430, of which 550 were adults. Sugar Creek Mission is now abandoned, and, as no allowance was made by the government for the improvements created by the mission, the whole collection of buildings were given to the flames in order to save them from desecration. The ashes are still there, and the granite block on which is carved the words, St. Mary's Mission, 1839 
marks the spot which lays, lies about five and a half miles northeast of Centerville, Lynn County, on the Zimmerman Farm. A pathetic but unwritten chapter of history gives play here to the imagination akin to what was inspired Longfellow to write his poem, Evangeline. But this, as it may, Lynn County has remained a barren Catholic field to this day. No Catholic church, no priest, no school or hospital, no Catholic anything is to be found within its borders. From a Catholic point of view, it seems as if the place was abandoned by God. Every effort made in its behalf by priests and bishops have come to naught. Catholic settlers avoid that county as the plague spot, and those who ventured in a generation or two ago have, with few exceptions, lost the faith. Who can explain this? Who can assign a cause for one of the fairest counties of the state, once blessed by the presence of saints and heroes, by teachers and preachers of exceptional merit, by the noblest spirits that have ever trod the plains of Kansas, to be utterly abandoned by the Catholic Church? Well, might the saintly founder of Sugar Creek Mission have repeated with our Lord as he wept over Zion, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered thy children as hens gathers her young beneath her wings, but thou wouldst not, and now thou drivest me cruelly from thy gates. One fears to continue the quotation. Good Father Hogan would never have dared to invoke such a malediction over the land which he had wept on the day of his departure. But God reigns and his justice remain forever. A remnant of the grand old tribe of Potawatomi's is still amongst us. Divine Providence has marked that band. Its name is indelibly stamped on the face of Kansas. Potawatomi Creek, Potawatomi County, Potawatomi Reservation, and a street is nearly every city bears the name. The name and fame of this tribe of Indians has gone abroad in the land. From the last issue of the Indian Sentinel, we glean the following interesting account of the successful missionary work done in the Leavenworth Diocese for the Indians. Quote, the Potawatomis are generous to their pastor and to their bishop and are gratefully availing themselves to the opportunities they now enjoy. Faligianis has placed a number of girls at the school of the sister Loreto, Pahuska, Oklahoma. One of the young ladies of the Kansas Potawatomis made her profession as a sister of St. Francis. There are three other religious from the Potawatomi tribe. One of these is also a sister of St. Francis, one a sister of the Holy Cross, and one a sister of St. Joseph. The Potawatomi tribe also has the distinction of giving to the church the first Indian priest, Father Albert Neganquet, who was born on the reservation in Kansas.